Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. has actually in his kindness spoken and he's written down everything we need for life and godliness in his word and that's where we're going to turn right now so you know we're talking about hope and we're turning to the book of peter so first peter chapter one and if you want to open your bibles there i'm going to read from verse 13 to 17 which is our text for today first peter chapter one verses 13 to 17 this is what god's word says Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the fetal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and spot. I'm reading on verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. That is the word of God. And I wonder if you think about the gospel and holiness, which you can see clearly is our theme for today. Holiness, then what comes to your mind? I wonder if you look at your life right now and consider everything that you've experienced through the gospel, how has your life changed since your eyes have been opened by Christ? One theologian says, Evangelicals have done a superb job evangelizing people. By God's grace, bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But, many start the life of faith with great enthusiasm, only to discover themselves in difficulty shortly afterwards. Their high hopes and good intentions seem to fade away. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh proves to be weak. And I wonder if you can relate to what he is saying. Because this side of heaven, we recognize that sin is very much a part of our lives. 
Where we can know the truth of the gospel and believe it. But we find ourselves at times living as if the gospel is not true at all. Or getting our minds fixed on a certain way of thinking where we are supposed to be thinking and acting God's way. But we struggle to do so. Well, let me give you an example of the Apostle Peter himself. As you know, we are studying the book of 1 Peter and we're talking about hope. But before we dive back into 1 Peter here, just look at Acts 10 with me for a brief moment. Acts chapter 10. And you can turn there if you like. And we see here an example of a situation where even the Apostle Paul Peter, the Apostle Peter, forgets the realities of the truth of the gospel. In Acts 10, we see how God changed the life of this Gentile Roman soldier named Cornelius. So perhaps you know the story of Cornelius well. God welcomed him into the family of faith without any kind of religious works or anything. Or having to give up his Gentile heritage, being circumcised or anything like that. But how did this happen? Well, God chose Peter to preach the gospel to Cornelius. This Roman soldier who is described as a God-fearing Gentile. But Peter had a hard time accepting this calling. Because what did God do? Well, what God did is give Peter a vision of uh, the sheep lowering from heaven, holding all kinds of clean and unclean animals. And three times in this vision, God said to Peter, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And three times Peter refused to eat unclean food. Because he had different ideas about the gospel and holiness. And what is allowed and what is not allowed. Three times a voice from heaven said that Peter is not to call something unclean that God has made clean. Verses 11 to 16. Now while Peter is trying to make sense about all of this, the servants of Cornelius, I mean because he's this prestigious leader, he had servants, they come to Peter's house. And Peter having no, no clue why they're there, he actually ends up going with them because the Spirit of God said to him, Go with them. Verses 17 to 22. And I'm not sure as Peter starts to recognize these guys are Gentiles, he must be pretty surprised. But he obeys and he goes along with them anyway. And then he arrives at Cornelius' house. Where there's this crowd of Gentiles waiting for him. And Peter naturally then asks them the question, May I ask... Why you sent for me? Verse 24 to 29. And it kind of seems like a reasonable question. But is it? Because it's actually a little bit ironic. Because Peter's like, We should know, you're an apostle. Peter, you're an apostle of Jesus. You are to announce the gospel to all nations and to the ends of the earth. Surely you know why God had sent you. Cornelius then says in verse 33, Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So tell us, Peter, what do you have for us? And what is the first thing Peter then says? Verses 34 and 35. I'm paraphrasing him. He says, Aha! I now realize how true it is that God does not like Jews more than He likes others. He likes all men. He accepts men from every nation who fear Him and do what is right. And you might be here. Well, how do you not know this, Peter? How do you only realize this now? Seeing as you know the gospel is for everyone. 
Peter, you saw how Jesus healed the Gentiles. How He talked to the Samaritans and on and on and on. You know this, Peter. But how can you forget? How can you forget the Gospel and its implications? Well, you see clearly that even the Apostle Peter forgets. Someone who walked and talked and served with Jesus. And many times when we go through this challenging life, armed with the wrong kind of thinking, we end up being like Peter. We start off well, but then along the way we get sidetracked by so many wrong influences and ideas. As we fight our own sinful flesh and the habits from the past, as we try to make sense of all the trials in our lives, we too can forget the powerful truth of the Gospel. We forget how amazing the Gospel really is and what it does. The very truth that changes everything about how we think and how we are to live. And as we turn now our attention back to the book of 1 Peter, we see clearly that Peter has changed drastically in how he thinks. Because all throughout this first chapter he has been talking about how amazing salvation is. And he's intentional in starting this letter by unpacking so many glorious truths about salvation. Why? Because he wants to give his suffering audience real hope in times of uncertainty. And you know, we've been talking a lot about hope now for the last couple of weeks. And biblical hope to be more precise. Because biblical hope is trusting in God for what He says will happen in the future. Biblical hope is allowing us to go through life with a confident expectation of what God is going to do in the future. Where true salvation allows us to hope in a loving, kind and faithful God. Especially when we are suffering and going through hard times. Because our hope in God actually changes the way we live our lives. And you know that Peter specifically starts his letter of hope and directs our attention to the mercy of God and how He has saved us in the past. And then he directs our attention to the future, to that guaranteed inheritance, having a hope that's truly alive. Verses 3 to 5. And that even our perspective about trials and suffering changes because that's verses 6 to 9. Knowing from last week that God uses trials to reveal and to purify and to strengthen our faith. Allowing us to have real deep down joy even as we go through hard times. Because of our intimate relationship with Christ and our love for Christ. Embracing all that He has done and all that He says He's going to do. And this is the amazingness of the gospel, you could say, that Peter goes on to celebrate in verses 10 to 12. He reminds his audience that if you look at your texts and your Bibles, that salvation was the core focus of the prophets. And everything they studied and talked about in verses 10. And then in verse 11 he says, they so desperately wanted to know about the person, the timing, and all the details of the things they wrote. And also in verse 11, he points out how the Spirit is involved in revealing things to them. Regarding how in the future, Christ would suffer and the glory that will follow. Now Peter also points out that the amazingness of salvation was the theme of the apostles. And everything they proclaim. And he points out in verse 12 that these apostles were not serving themselves. Because who are they serving? He says, but you, his audience and us today... This amazing gospel has been on everyone's mind and has now been proclaimed to you. And so you recognize what an amazing privilege it is that we have the gospel. 
In fact, it's so amazing. Look at this. Verse 12 at the end. Even the angels long to look at the greatness of this salvation. But then, there's the shift here. There's a shift in Peter's thinking. Up to now, Peter has been stating all the facts about the gospel. And how amazing it is. And now from verse 13 onwards, he's getting to the real implications of the gospel. He's getting to the imperatives, the, the commands, the what you do because of the gospel. Because the gospel changes people. It fundamentally changes everything about you. And what Peter is going to show us today is how it changes the way we relate to God. He is going to show us how our hope in Christ changes the way we live for Christ. Peter knows that we need help to process holy living and obedience in light of God's grace, His mercy, and this eternal security that we have in Jesus. And so he's going to show us how hope and holiness work together. And even in the context of suffering, because biblical hope changes the way you live your life. True biblical hope produces holiness in your life. 1 John 3 verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. And essentially the big idea is if you live in hope, you will live in holiness. If you live in hope, you will live in holiness. Peter wants us to remember and to recognize that when you live in true biblical hope, you constantly live with your mind fixed on the grace of God that is coming. And that longing and anticipation for the return of Jesus produces a change in the way we live a holy life now. It produces holiness. Recognizing who you are in Christ and how to relate to God based on this relationship you have with Him as a child of God. And so because of our hope in God, I want to look at three changes we need to make to live holy lives. Three changes we need to make to live holy lives. Three changes that can develop a holy lifestyle as those who are hoping in Christ. And so firstly, to live a holy life, you have to change the way you think. Number one, you have to change the way you think. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The way you think impacts the way you live. Is that simple? And it seems pretty obvious, right? If you think the wrong thoughts, it impacts your holiness. If you think the wrong thoughts about the gospel, you can go from enjoying the freedom that Jesus had purchased for you, to making it all about you again, your performance, and how you are obeying and not obeying God. But rather, Peter wants Christians to be thinking with anticipation and clarity. If you're going to live holy lives, he really wants these suffering believers to think straight. If they are going to persevere in difficult times. And so the main command or imperative from this verse is actually at the end of verse 13. Where Peter says, set your hope fully. Set your hope fully. That is the main command from this verse. This is what you have to do. Beginning of verse 13, he says, Therefore, therefore, based on all the truth of the gospel and the certainty of your future, verses 1 to 12, 
Now set your hope fully on what is to come. And this main command has two participles before it, indicating how we are to achieve this. In other words, Peter is saying that in order to set your hope fully on the grace that is to come, you need to be preparing your minds for action and be sober-minded. You have to change the way you think. Because maybe that is you right now. The wrong thinking you are going through is causing you to suffer even more. Where the full truth of the gospel is becoming distorted in your mind. Where one day you're up here with joy and happiness and the next day you're down here with hopelessness and sadness. And the more you think of your sin, the more depressed you become. And the more you think of your suffering in the wrong way, the less you see the glory that is to come. And one big theme now from the book of Peter that we have seen again and again is how we have to intentionally think about the promises of God and what is to come. And so what does it mean to prepare our minds for actions then? For action. Because there's a picture here. In the original language, the translation talks about girding up the loins of your mind. And girding up is a funny word, girding. But it refers to taking a belt and before you go into battle, you know, the guys kind of wore dresses back in the day. It's more like this robe. And you have to pick up this, this dress and you have to tighten it with your belt and get ready for battle because you don't want this robe to bother you as you try and move. A modern day saying would be like, we've got to roll up our sleeves. And it's the same picture with your mind and your thoughts. Peter is saying you have to be ready to move without any distractions. You have to be ready to take action. Before you can take action though, you have to prepare yourself. And specifically, prepare your mind. How you think. Because if you think the wrong way, it's going to distort the truth you say you believe about the future. And so Peter's like, don't let your thoughts be all over the place. Tie them up and get them ready. Don't be lazy in your thinking either. Rather, you have to get your thought life in order. Because holy living starts in the mind. Holy living starts in the mind. And what you think impacts what you do. And so we have to line up every thought we have under the truth of God's Word. Especially in a context where we're thinking about the future. Because man, you know how easy it is to go in the wrong direction because of a lack of thinking rightly about what is true. And so this idea of girding up your mind and being ready is actually all over the Bible. We see this idea come up just before the big exodus where Israel comes out of the land of Egypt. Exodus 12 verse 11 says, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The Israelites were preparing for this final plague against Pharaoh and, and in this preparation time it led to them to have this Passover meal. And this meal had to be different from what we're going to have in the next couple of weeks when you have your Sunday Easter lunch where it's all relaxed and everyone's enjoying and kicking off your sandals. Now this meal had to be eaten quickly with your sandals on and your staff in your hand because of what is to come. Their garments had to be tucked in and tightened up as a means of reminding people that very soon they will have to depart and be ready to go. 
They had to be mentally and physically ready to leave. And church, in the same way, we have to be ready mentally and physically when Jesus comes back. Because the way we think impacts the way we hope, impacts the way we live. And so, if you're all over the place and you're thinking about who God is and how we are to live in holiness, uh, waiting for Him to return, how the cares of this world are consuming your mind and you're getting all confused and you get to the point where you even doubt your faith, whether you are truly a Christian. Because of one trial after the other and all of the suffering you're enduring. You say, yes, I want to live for Jesus, but I struggle so much with sin. We're actually living like everyone else around you. And then Peter's saying, stop. Stop. You have to tie up all those wrong thoughts and bring them under the submission of God's truth. So not only do we need to get our thinking ready, you have to maintain that thinking, the right kind of thinking, by being sober-minded. Maintain your thinking by being sober-minded. So again, we have a picture here because if we take soberness literally... It means that you are not to become drunk. And then the picture is that we need to keep a clear head. Because if you can't think clearly, if you're intoxicated with all the lies of the world around you, Peter is calling us to have self-control in our thought life. Which means you actively have to be removing distractions in your life. Things are going to hinder you in your godly thinking. Think of the influence of all the stuff we listen to every day. And compare that to the Word of God. And ask yourself, is what I'm going to listen to and read and and get into my mind right now, is that going to make me more holy or less holy? Do we ever stop and wonder that before we even listen? Because if you get rid of the distractions, it results in you having the right priorities, having a disciplined mind. A mind that is able to respond to the wrong thoughts you might have by submitting them to Christ immediately. And taking them captive as the Bible says. And then replacing them with what is true. This kind of makes me think of what Paul says to Timothy, where he's charged to preach the word faithfully, knowing that people will listen to all kinds of false teaching because people only want to hear what they want to hear. And then Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So we need to be sober-minded if we are going to survive with all the lies around us and all the temptations within us. 1 Peter 5.8, he goes on to say later that believers need to be sober and be alert. Why? Because we know that the prowling devil is seeking to devour us. We need to be able to stand against the devil and all his lies because he's out to destroy you. And there's no way you can fight against those lies if you're intoxicated by your former way of thinking. Falling back, thinking the same way before you were transformed by the gospel of grace. And so Peter's saying, there needs to be a serious mental alertness here. And it's hard to be alert if you're not sober in your thinking. You can't go around and be exposed to all these worldly things and expect that is not going to have an impact on your holiness. We have to give our entire thought life to God. 
Because every single thought belongs to Him. So think of what, what this changed way of thinking does. The idea of being ready and preparing your mind. This helps us not to be casual and relaxed regarding the fact that Jesus is coming back. And being sober-minded reminds us that we should not be caught of God when He does in fact come back. We need to think clearly to be able to see clearly. You need to think clearly if you're going to see clearly. And so we don't want to go through life becoming so caught up with the problems we have that we take our eyes off the fact that Jesus is coming back at any moment. Becoming so used to thinking a certain way that we forget the amazingness of the Gospel. And so, our changer of thinking practically impacts the way we think about the future. And the primary command then is to set your hope fully on the grace to come. Set your hope fully on the grace to come. If you're going to live a holy life until Jesus comes back, then you need to have a laser-sharp focus on the future. You have to set the right goal for your thinking. And be crystal clear on what it is you're aiming for. I watched the movie a long time ago, and this is one of those classic movies uh, with a dad and his son, I think it's Mel Gibson. And this dad had to give this, this gun to this inexperienced son of his who's never shot a gun before, this rifle gun, to keep the enemy away from their home because there's this war going on. And so the dad teaches his child, if you aim small, you will miss small. In other words, if you are so focused on the exact target you want, you will be more successful in getting it. And what is it that we are to aim for exactly? Well, Peter says, set your hope fully. That is completely. That means you are all in on this one. On what? On the grace that is to be revealed to you when Jesus comes back. Peter is wanting us to specifically focus on the grace of God. He doesn't say heaven here. Do you see that? He's not saying heaven. Put your hope fully on heaven. In this particular verse, he specifically says grace. And so you ask yourself, why grace? Peter's helping us get our thinking straight because when you became a Christian, it was all grace, right? And when you Christ is going to come back and glorifies you, that's going to be grace as well. And so Peter wants to make it clear that everything in the past was grace, and the future will be grace. So even now, as you try and live in holiness, which in this difficult life, it's going to be grace as well. Because by setting our hope on grace, brings clarity to us that nothing you or I do after your salvation will earn us any favor with God. It was all grace then, and this is going to be all grace in the future. You were not worthy of salvation in the past, and guess what? You're not going to be worthy of salvation in the future. So you cannot perform your way to heaven on your own, even after you have been saved. And I think many of us, when we be honest and we think about holy living in this dark times, we fall into this trap. Where deep down we have these times in our lives where we don't cling to what Christ has done on our behalf. We cling to some kind of self-effort to be holy, to be right with God, and to feel accepted by Him. 
And when you see you can't do it by yourself, you get overwhelmed and it clouds your thinking of the gospel because you start to doubt whether you are really a Christian in the first place. And so Peter is saying the grace of God is God's undeserved kindness from start to finish. No level of obedience makes you more or less acceptable to God. Because Jesus paid it all and to all to Him we owe. But fixing our hope on this grace, this grace of God, changes the way we think. And what we focus on as we fight against sin, because it is when you trust God completely for the future, that brings Him glory. When you find true satisfaction in His future promises, that brings Him glory. But when you doubt Him, and you live in unbelief, you're essentially saying, God, I don't think you're in control. I can't trust you. Someone that has received grace in the past and in the present needs to trust God for that future grace as well. And you do that by living in hope that God will be faithful in the future, which you know is something that is certain. And you trust Him now, and you give Him glory now, and by hoping in this grace, you honor Him. Let me give you an example. Romans chapter 4. The example of Abram. Verse 18. Paul writes, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so Abraham he beautifully shows us that he had respect and trust in the promise of God. This hope against hope is telling us that when the situation seems so impossible, Abram trusted in God. He hoped in God and what God will do in the future. And that brought glory to the Father. And so true believers, you have a responsibility. A responsibility to think about the future in a certain way. And Peter says it's not only thinking about the grace you received in the past, but very specifically, the grace that is coming in the future. This laser focus on future grace, this helps us deal with our sin right now. It changes how we pursue holiness. For example, let's say you struggle with anxiety. Then having the right thinking about this grace that is to come helps you fight unbelief and fear with the promises of God. Again, Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Because you realize that anxiety is actually an issue of the heart. An issue that leads to so many other sinful ways of thinking. And so imagine you're on this racetrack and heading towards the finish line and someone throws mud on your windshield. You're not going to be able to see this is what anxiety does. It causes us to blur our vision of God's glory. 
And the greatness of the future that He has in store for us. Which means our faith is being attacked. And so what do we do? We have to actually turn on the windshield wipers. To get that dirt off so that we can see clearly again. And we do that by coming to God's cleansing word. And the promises of His future grace. Because it's God's grace that will get you to the finish line. And it's the promises of God that will help clear the way. Clear your thinking. And so we can see the finish line without any distractions. And know exactly what we are aiming for. Titus, he talks about grace as well. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself the people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So do you see what grace does, according to Titus? It's the grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. It's this grace that allows us to live holy lives now, as we wait for our blessed hope. And it causes us to do the good works that God has prepared for us beforehand. And not to mess around the, the dirt and the sins of our past, and so we need to have the right focus on the grace of God. God gave it before and He's going to give it again. And as we wait for it, by focusing in on this glorious grace that is to come, that grace of God is at work in you right now. Causing us to grow in our affections with God. To find true satisfaction in Christ. And not in the distracting pleasures of a sinful world. And so, if we are going to live holy lives, we have to change the way we think. We have to fully, completely set our hope on this grace that is to come. Preparing our minds and being sober-minded, and not only do we have to change what we think, here's number two. To live a holy life, we actually have to change the way you live. You have to change the way you live. Verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so we said that the right thinking leads to the right kind of living. And motivated by the grace of God, we are to live holy lives that puts His glory on display. And that requires that we remember who we are. Living in light of our true identity in Christ. To live in light of your true identity as God's obedient children. And Peter calls believers obedient children here. And he's actually alluded to this fact already at the very start of this letter. He says, you have been chosen, verses 2, talking about the elect exiles. For what? For obedience to Jesus Christ. Because this is what the gospel does. Remember Ephesians 2, we said before, you were saved, you were sons of disobedience. But now, by grace, through faith, he calls believers obedient children. This is who you are in Christ. 
This is your true identity. And we need to live in light of what is true. And so we should not forget who we are no matter what our circumstances are. And in order to do that, Peter says, don't live the way you used to. Like the pagan world around you. You can imagine these strangers living amongst these Roman pagans. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. If you're going to live a holy life, you have to remember who you are and you should change the way you live. And this idea of conformed, it carries with it this picture of being forced into a mold. You know when you force a spinning clay to be shaped the way you want it to be shaped. In fact, this word conformed is also used by Paul in Romans 12 verse 2, a verse that we all know so well. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so the world and our formal sinful desires, they will keep putting pressure on us to think a certain way and to live a certain way. But we have to change that. We have to change the passions that are going on in our hearts and these formal ways of ignorance because we have to direct our hope and our passions to God. Because this word passions or, or lust actually refers to all the kinds of desires like money and approval and pleasure and power and all the things that mocked your life before you were a Christian. Whatever it might be. As you look at your life and you see some of these lusts and desires are strong. But we know the power of God has broken the power of sin. The power of God has broken the power of sin. And now we can actually change the way we live in practical ways and the way we used to live. Because we've received this gift of salvation and this understanding of God's holiness. In other words, you're not in the dark anymore. No more excuses. One man says, this former ignorance is less a state of lacking information because people heard the gospel all over. But it's more profound failure to grasp the character and purpose of God. Which means we can't keep living as if we were dead. As if our hope is dead. As if there's nothing to rejoice in. And there's no need to pursue holiness because my life is so hard. Can you see that even in the context of severe suffering, God expects absolute holiness? We can't keep on living sinful lives like we used to. And so ask yourself, when someone looks at your life right now, will they be able to say, your life is different? Or do you look like the same person you were before? Do you look like everyone else around you? Because Jesus changes the way we live. Because He becomes the most valuable person to us. He's not just this tool that we use to try and get what we want. Because true saving faith means that we break with our former way of living. The kind of stuff we watch. The kind of friends we have. The kind of places we hang out. The kind of activities we do and keep ourselves busy. The kind of career we pursue. The kind of relationships we pursue. The way we approach marriage, the way we approach church membership, the way we make decisions about everything. 
Everything changes because of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Because Peter says next in verse 15, Be holy in everything you do. Do you see it? Be holy in everything you do. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In other words, we must establish a habit of obedience in everything we do. Because as you hope in Christ, you are to live like Christ. It's not just when you feel like it or you don't. It's to be a lifestyle of holiness because the the one who called you to saving faith is holy. So now you should be living a life of holiness as well. Which shows us what? It shows us that God's holiness is our standard for holiness. It's not the culture that tells you how you should think about marriage. It's not your culture that tells you what career you should choose and what you should not choose. It's not your culture that tells you what is okay and what is not. And I like how one man says it. He says, We know we cannot be as holy as God is, because He is God and we are not. But we can be holy because God is holy. In other words, as we pursue the standard of God's holiness, our lives will be holier ourselves. We need the standard of holiness, otherwise we're going to fall back into the former way of living. Without the right standard, we will mess up grace and make it all about our own performance. Without the right standard, we forget our purpose. Which is the very thing Peter mentions in the next verse, verse 16. Be holy as I am holy. Do you see that purpose? You are to be holy because God says you are to be holy. And as you hear these words, your mind, if you've been reading your Old Testament, it's going ding, ding, ding. I've heard this before. Be holy as I am holy. Leviticus 11.44 Because God chooses this nation to be holy, not simply because it will be good for them, but because it's for the purpose of bringing God the glory. To put His glory on display. And in the same way, we are to hope for how our holiness will bring God glory. Because you have all these believers who are scattered over the Roman Empire. And Peter says to them, you know what? You have the same purpose as the Jewish nation of Israel had so long ago. God told them they are a chosen people. And as believers today, we are a chosen people. And chosen for what purpose? To be a holy nation. To be a royal priesthood. The very thing Peter says in chapter 2 verse 5. Like Israel, we are to live as holy people. To display the holiness of God to an unbelieving world. But how? Well, through our love and commitment and obedience to God and His Word. To be different. But we don't do it in our own strength, trying to keep all these commands by ourselves. God knows that we cannot do it. And didn't work before. So what does He do? He writes it on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, Luke 22. We obey through the grace of God. All this grace that we are to fix our hope fully and completely on. And as we think about how God is calling us to be holy like He is holy, we in fact see that His standard helps us know, it actually helps us know how we can bring glory to a glorious God. How you 
can bring glory to a glorious God. And so Peter goes on in the rest of the letter to explain what disobedience looks like. From chapter 2 onwards, Peter describes and says, Put away sin, long for the word, live honorably, submit to authority, and serve faithfully. Respect your husband, chapter 3. Be sensitive to your wife. Live in unity with other people. Chapter 4, live for God's glory. Serve with your gifts. Chapter 5, elders must lead with example. Be humble. Resist the devil. And look forward to the coming Jerusalem. The day of the Lord. Believer, God has called you to be holy. Be different. And to live a holy life, you have to change what you think. And you have to change what you do. And finally, number three, to live a holy life, you have to change what you fear. You have to change what you fear. Verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And the big idea here is that only as you fear God in the right way can you face the future without any fear. Because as you go to God in prayer and call on Him, you need to know that, yes, He is your Father. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. But as a loving, merciful, gracious Father, He is also objective and impartial. He sees everything clearly as they really are. In other words, as you go to Him in prayer through this intimate relationship and this time of suffering and trials and despair, you should know that you are talking to the One who objectively judges each person according to what he or she does. And because that is true, you should conduct your life with the right fear of God. And as you grow closer and closer to God, then you know that He is your Father and He will discipline you for your unholy living. That's what we saw last week as well when we talked about trials. He will judge you according to everything you do. Not what other people do to you. You are responsible for the way you respond. So we need to be careful of how we live our lives, having the right attitude and honor towards God. Because God knows what sins you are conforming to. The sins that are part of your former way of living that you are not letting go of. The sins that you are finding more satisfaction in rather than finding satisfaction in Him. And again, the relational aspect between a holy father and his children, we see here in Hebrews 12, where he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves, and chastises every son whom He receives. We need to be quick to repent of our sin, and run toward God and not away from Him. If we truly want to honor Him, then we will obey Him. Because living with the right fear, this holy reverence and awe and respect for who God is, understanding daily more of His holiness, His perfection and His grace, then it will change what we fear in this world. You know what I'm talking about. Like other people. 
and what they think of us as we live lives that are wholly indifferent. Because just like God is like no one else, you are to model that and live like no one else. People are supposed to look at you and think, you're different. And we don't fear trials because we know they help us grow and strengthen our faith. And we don't fear death because the pursuit of holiness gives us confidence that we are honoring God with our lives. As we trust in His good promises. And that even when we meet Him in person, face to face, we will not fear judgment. Why? Because of the grace in Jesus Christ. Because we are confidently fixing our hope on the grace that will be revealed to us when Christ returns. We are motivated by grace to obey the Lord and bring honor to Him. Changing our former way of thinking. Changing our former way of living. And by changing the way we fear Him and take sin seriously. And make holy living a way of life. And not just something we do on Sundays. And so it's good to ask ourselves... And consider, as we talk about all this stuff about hope and holiness, what really motivates me to obey? Because we are like children, you know, because we hear that we need to obey God in every area of our lives. But we don't always understand why. Or we forget why. One scholar, he explains that obedience can be motivated in various ways. One way is by way of wisdom. Which says, it is only reasonable to obey God's law. After all, He created all things, so He knows how they work. So we expect His commands to be good and effective and bring us good. Another way is a way of trust, He says. God loves us and would never mislead us. We should therefore behave and trust Him as He directs things to make them work. And if we do what is right for Him, we do what is right for us. Or finally, the way of gratitude. This, uh, this way of motivation says that it is right for us to obey God without reserve. Because God first gave Himself without reserve to us when He redeemed us. Because He has done so much for us, we should be willing to do much for Him. And these motivations of wisdom, trust and gratitude, they seem to be good, good motivations. And they are. They are different from some people in the way they think because of earning God's favor, that's why I obey. Or I'm going to obey because there's wrong kind of fear to avoid punishment. Because ultimately, these motivations are, are selfish. But if you think about it some more, even the ways of wisdom, trust and gratitude, they're not the full picture. They can even have the sense of a little bit of selfishness in there as well. There's trust and gratitude toward the Lord, but there's also desire to gain some kind of benefit. To myself. And so what is the better motivation? Is it not God Himself? To obey God for who He is. A holy God. The same scholar goes on. He says, if we demand a reward to obey God, we love the reward rather than God. And he gives a practical example. He says, think of three men. They go running each day of the week. And as you ask them what motivates you to run with so much dedication, the first guy answers, he says, I run because my father died of a heart attack and I want to live long, enough to see my grandkids grow up. The second guy says, I run because I can eat whatever I want to eat and I won't gain weight. It also helps me to sleep better at night. And the third guy says, 
When I run, my legs soar over the ground. The wind brushes my face and my heart beats like a slow, heavy thunder in my chest. And I feel alive. I simply love running. And so it's clear. What are the motivations for these, each one of these guys? Because the first runner runs out of fear. Worried about what will happen if he stops. The second runs out of the benefits of running. Health and good sleep. But the third guy... He's able to run because running is the reward of itself. And so the first two, they, they love health and food and sleep, where running is an instrument they use to get what they want. It's only the third guy who loves running for running. And the obedience of these first two runners, I think, may, might be, maybe resembles a lot of the reasons we are motivated to obey. Where we obey to avoid what we fear. And to get what we want. And so we have to ask ourselves, how many of us serve God and seek no reward other than God Himself? This John 5 verse 3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Is that not what Peter already said, that if we have this guaranteed future inheritance, which is being with Christ Himself, And though we do not see Him now, we long for Him and we love Him. And we cannot wait to be with Him. That is why biblical hope produces the right perspective about obedience and holiness. To obey God with the right motivation. Because our hope is not in the quality of our faith, but in the object of our faith, which is Christ. I mean, the gospel really is amazing. True salvation is really amazing. The grace of God is amazing because the gospel says that we have been justified, declared innocent and completely forgiven, which means Jesus takes care of our guilt and our condemnation. It makes us go from being alienated and lonely to being cherished and loved. It shows us that the power of sin is broken by the power of God. And no matter how we feel right now, We are no longer trapped by sin. It shows us that the wrath of God's judgment has been poured out on Christ instead of us. And His love for us and our love for Him then is able to cast out fear. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead affirms that we have a living hope. We have a joyful hope. And it affirms that we indeed have a holy hope. What a hope we have that we can indeed be holy because God is holy. And if you're going to live a life of holiness, then we need to change the way we think. We need to change the way we live and we need to change the way we fear. Setting our hope fully. We're all in on the grace of God every moment of every day. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are just again so thankful for the amazingness of the gospel. That you would look on unholy sinners like us and send your son and take the place that we deserve to wash us clean from all our sin. 
But not only wash us clean, but giving us the grace, the ability to set our hope on the future promises that Christ is coming again and we're going to be glorified with Him. That changes the way I live right now. We want to worship You through our lives. We want to be a testimony in this world. We want to be different. Your Word says we need to be different. And by Your grace, we can be different. So Father, help help us even this week change the way we, we think. Help us evaluate what things are cluttering our mind. What is the influences we have that are distracting us from the, the beautiful truth that we are not ready for when Jesus comes back? Help us to make those practical changes in the way we live. Being so convinced of this, this grace that is going to come that we do not seek to find any confidence in our own performance. But we rest securely in what Christ has done in our behalf. And Father, help us to live in the right awe and respect of who you are, truly are, the almighty God of this universe who loves us with an everlasting love. And we pray that you would, by your grace, strengthen us this week to be a holy people for your world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.